The Savior once asked his disciples the following question. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? This is a question that my father taught me to carefully consider years ago. As I was growing up, my parents assigned me chores around the house and paid me an allowance for that work. I often used that money, a little over 50 cents a week, to go to the movies. Back then, a movie ticket cost 25 cents for an 11-year-old. This left me with 25 cents to spend on candy bars, which cost five cents a piece. A movie with five candy bars. It couldn't get much better than that. All was well until I turned 12. Standing in line one afternoon, I realized that the ticket price for a 12-year-old was 35 cents, and that meant two less candy bars. Not quite prepared to make that sacrifice, I reasoned to myself, you look the same as you did a week ago. I then stepped up and asked for the 25 cent ticket. The cashier did not blink and I bought my regular five candy bars instead of three. Elated by my accomplishment, I later rushed home to tell my dad about my big coup. As I poured out the details, he said nothing. When I finished, he simply looked at me and said, son, would you sell your soul for a nickel? His words pierced my 12-year-old heart. It is a lesson I have never forgotten. that was my sweet loving husband that has an awesome radio voice doesn't he he read an excerpt from a talk by elder robert c gay who shared a story back in 2012 and he called the story what shall a man give in exchange for his soul thank you so much for joining us this week at lds real people real lives podcast if you guys could do me a huge favor To help others find me, please take time to review the podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening from, especially Apple, please, as I get the bulk of my listeners from there. If you like the podcast and it has helped you in any way, please take the time to review it so others can find me too. Mahalo. Just a little disclaimer for this week's episode. We will be covering some very adult topics that actually kids and teenagers may deal with too, but just to give you a bit of a heads up in case little ears may be listening. I am Stephanie Colvin and I will be your host coming to you from my little slice of paradise in Southern California and on with the episode and this episode this week is on addiction. I have been taking an emotional resilience class that is a pilot program put on by the church. It's a 10 or 12 week program and I was struck very hard when we covered the top of addiction. I had an opportunity to speak to someone in the program that shared with me some hardships for a family member and it truly hit home with me because it had to do with addiction. And that nasty little word, and what a nasty involvement it can be and is, addiction. 
We can have so many different addictions from gambling to sex to drugs, alcohol, pornography, and more. And all are very destructive to the physical and spiritual body. President Nelson said in a talk from October of 1988, and I quote, From an initial experiment thought to be trivial, a vicious cycle may follow. From trial comes a habit. From habit comes dependence. From dependence comes addiction. Its grasp is so gradual. Enslaving shackles of habit are too small to be sensed until they are too strong to be broken. No families are free from risk. He goes on to say agency must be understood. The importance of the will and making crucial choices must be known. Then steps towards relief can follow. The church has an addiction recovery program and all you need do is ask your bishop about it to see when and where they have it. You can also find the addiction recovery manual in the LDS Gospel Library app, which is under the Life Help section, I believe. And the recovery program is centered around Christ because as Christ having descended below all things, he comprehends perfectly and personally the full range of human suffering. He truly does and believe you me, you are never ever alone. There's a story that I'd like to share about a gentleman who was born in Mexico, um, but he grew up in South Central Los Angeles and then he moved to San Fernando Valley. And his dad was a alcoholic and he beat this gentleman up every day when he was a child on into his teen years. However, when this man uh, turned 14, it was the last time that his dad had ever touched him because he left. Now, he didn't have a place to go, so he was living on the streets. And the third night that he was on the streets, he was sleeping behind a dumpster and some guys had found him and they tried to hurt him. As he ran away, he came upon a prostitute on the street who asked if he was hurt. And he said, I'm not hurt. Are you hurt? Being really tough, he felt like he had to put on a show to protect himself. And then he asked her, do you need someone to protect you? She ended up allowing him to stay with her in her room, her hotel room, or, or maybe like a uh, studio apartment and he found that she was a heroin addict. So that was his introduction to a very strong and very addictive drug. He did have a social worker that knew he was getting into trouble and she introduced him to a family where he could be comfortable. And he found that the dad actually took care of the family, which was very foreign to him and that the mom cooked wonderful meals. He just remembered how good the food was. Again, foreign to him. So he started attending church and they happened to be LDS. So he was going to church with his family and the bishop of the ward had asked him if he would like to serve a mission. And he thought that sounded pretty good. So he served a mission 
and he witnessed some miraculous miracles. And it was the highest, most memorable point of his life, something that he would never, ever forget. When he got back, he set out on his own and he found a good woman, got married, he had children, and inevitably they ran into financial issues, as we all do, and we're going to multiple times in this life. So he fell back into what he knew best. He was cooking some drugs in the bathroom. I believe it was methamphetamine and his wife caught him. So she left him. She took the kids and she moved out. She was not going to put up or tolerate that one iota. And this man fell into an absolute tailspin. So he says he went back into the hood. He went back to what he knew. He went back to selling dope and committing crimes and he lived this way from then on for decades, at least two. He says that you could not quantify how many things that I had done wrong. The weight of the guilt and the feeling of remorse was like it just overawed me. He didn't think it was possible to ever get clean. He really thought that this was his life and he could not do any better. But he remembered in the scriptures that the Lord had descended below all things. And certainly if there was anything or anyone who could save him, it was the infinite atonement and Jesus Christ. It would take a God who had descended below all things to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as his. In order to remove the guilt and unspeakable, unspeakable horrors, horrors and sorrows that he had been carrying for a lifetime, he knew that it all hinged on confession. So he finally found himself in front of his bishop's door and knew he would have to share some things that were hurtful and shameful. Things that you didn't want other people to know. Things that you would never, ever even repeat to yourself in the dark. When he was able to confess all of his sins, it was like he was free from all of it. He was happier. He was lighter. And he was joyous because he was able to be rebaptized. He found a good woman, remarried. Uh, was has been married for about three years now and he's clean and free from addiction he doesn't even have a single desire to do what he used to do because the holy ghost is in his life and in his heart and he's able to take the sacrament he says my life is good it's really really good and i want you to know it's possible to change and it's possible to be forgiven and it starts with confession. His story is so amazing and inspiring because of the depths he found himself in of transgression and egregious sin. Yet God, as always, continued to reach out to him. And finally, he responded and found release from the shackles of sin and addiction. I also love how he pointed out that by meeting this bishop, Truly his judge in Israel and confessing his mistakes, his sins, he was freed from the overwhelming burden of his life, his choices, 
the agency that he was given that was misused for so much time of his life. When we turn to our leaders, whether they be a bishop or state president, it truly is a union of compassion, understanding, forgiveness, and hope. There is so much hope. There's nothing you or I could do to put us so far off from the Lord that we are irretrievable. There's absolutely nothing that we could do. Addiction is both spiritual and physical, and what we do to the physical affects the spiritual, so it's an all-encompassing suffering and feeling of hopelessness, as if you are worthless and then your actions proceed to be a reflection of that belief. You can do a lot of self-harm when you feel that way about yourself. Do you see how powerful belief is? This is why the leaders of the church encourage us to lay hold upon the word. Belief, faith is everything. Elder M. Russell Ballard teaches, researchers tell us there is a mechanism in our brain called the pleasure center. When activated by certain drugs or behaviors, It overpowers the part of our brain that governs our willpower, our judgment, logic, and morality. And this leads the addict to abandon what he or she knows is right. Repentance can heal us both spiritually and physically. But most importantly, that yoke. The Savior is willing to take that yoke and bear that burden for you. I know addiction doesn't just affect the addict, but also those around them, especially spouses, children, family, jobs. And as I do my best to really stick to the premise of this podcast, which is real people, real lives, and being raw, open, and genuine, I will now share with you my story. can't believe how fast my heart's pounding and that's because I haven't really been super open about my life and the things that the addictions that I had acquired to cope with the abuse that I had for a few years when I was very little um charging forward and I'm, I'm doing this because I want to reach out to those who are really struggling I know that we live in a world that is very wicked and there's a lot of evil out there I'm, we truly are in the latter days and this is Lucifer's playground but There's a whole nother side of it where God and Christ abide with us in the Holy Ghost. And that is our saving grace. 
So I've mentioned before that um, when I started smoking cigarettes, I was in fourth grade. And by the time I had hit junior high, I was smoking marijuana. By the time I hit my freshman year, I was drinking. By the time I hit my junior year, I was doing cocaine. And by the time I had graduated high school, I had moved on to methamphetamine. So, you know, they talk about cigarettes and marijuana being a gateway drug, and that was very much true in my case. Um, The abuse that I had experienced was... It had changed my my brain. Um, In some respects, I feel like I was robbed of who I could have been. But as I've gotten older, I realize I am who I'm supposed to be, if that makes any sense. Um, I just turned 48 years old. And I have friends who are dealing with severe health issues. I'm amazed with the amount of punishment that I have put my body through that I don't have any severe illnesses going on. I look at that as a tender mercy from a loving Heavenly Father who has been there for me every step of the way, even when I suffered. Um, The progression of the... um, chemicals you know without the chemicals I was I was kind of a weird kid I just had very different um, thinking about the world about my friends about things that I and I knew it because I knew I was different because I listened to my friends and the things that they talked about so I often was afraid to talk or say anything for fear that they would think I was weird. So my friends used to say, oh, Stephanie's, you know, the uh, center of the party, just need to get some chemicals in her. And wanting to fit in, uh, to have friends, I participated and did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. Um... Nothing as far as sex was concerned because of the sexual abuse. I wasn't really into uh, having boyfriends or, um, you know, getting into a relationship. I was not promiscuous whatsoever. But I was looking to, and of course hindsight being twenty twenty now, to really kind of numb this confusion um, and this desperation, this sense of loss that I had. You know, this. I was born in 1972, so when my parents found out in the early 80s, you know, it wasn't handled well. Um, they didn't really know what to do. Uh, we were really struggling. It's... You know, just trying to put some context around this. My parents had five kids. 
Um, they worked really hard. They were working all the time just to put food on the table, to keep the home that we we're in, to put clothes on our back. So it was really hard for them to give the time. And, you know, nowadays we know a lot about therapy. We have all these resources and that just was not available back then. I mean, we didn't even have the internet. You really had to give it a good old fashioned effort to figure this stuff out. And that just didn't happen. So nothing was ever really addressed as far as helping me, but I don't believe my parents knew to the extent how long the sexual abuse had gone on. Um, the right questions were not asked and I did not volunteer any more than I needed to. So, you know, these addictions, they changed my brain. I was always dependent and it's not just the drugs. Now that I have been clean and sober for seven years, almost, um, I am, I have a huge food addiction and I deal with my life, my anxieties, my stresses, the pressure, um, through food. And so now that is another addiction that I'm trying to conquer because I do have a very addictive personality. Um, I do believe that that is inherited as well as it comes through my father's side. On my father's side, there is a lot of addiction behavior as well as mental illness. And there's just so much to know and so much to learn about addiction. And it truly is a painful kind of suffering. Because for me, I really felt like I was completely worthless. And so I did a lot of things that was self-harm and self-sabotage. So I mentioned that in my later high school years, I had moved on to cocaine. After that, I had been out of high school for, I think, about six months to a year. And I had moved on to methamphetamine. And then I found myself pregnant at 19. And I stopped everything that I was doing. Uh, even drinking, smoking cigarettes, I stopped everything because thankfully I was born and raised in the church and I had the foundation of the gospel. I had a testimony and I had my faith and um, I did not want to saddle my baby with any type of addictions and it was, I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could not harm this child. And so when he was born, I went back to what I was doing before, which was smoking, drinking, uh, marijuana, and methamphetamine. And then needless to say, I found myself pregnant again. So I stopped everything again and um, had my next child in 94. So they're two years apart. And then um, I resumed everything again after that. It is how I handled my entire life was always looking to these chemicals. Uh, I had no coping skills of my own and uh, I really suffered because of that. So I quit methamphetamine when I was about I want to say 24. Um, 
maybe 23. I had been doing it so long that, uh, you know, it's really hard to be a good parent when you're on drugs. I think that's, you know, a rational conclusion. Um, But for me, I had always gotten good grades and I always worked. Um, So I was able to juggle it all. And uh, (sighs) the thing that really caught me, that really woke me up and like snapped my brain was one day I went to go pick up my kids after work. And my older son uh, was about almost four so my younger son was almost two and as I was walking out my younger son was crying for his grandmother and he was calling her mom and that's just struck my heart I was absolutely absolutely devastated and um, I know it's because I was leaving them too much with their grandmother because on the weekends I was out partying And I was also trying to shield them from my addiction. And it was really, it was really, really hard. Um, I remember when I got home that night with the kids, I did everything I normally do. um, Fed them, played with them, loved on them. And then they went to bed. And then I went to my room. And I cried all night because my son was calling his grandmother mom how confused he must have been and there was just something that clicked in my brain and I just thank God for this every day that I just did not want to do it anymore and that I had to make a choice it was either the drugs or my children And I just decided that day that I was going to be the best mom that I could be. And so I stopped. Well, by the time I had stopped the methamphetamine, I already had the physical effects of it on my body. I had these dark spots all over my arms. I had these things going on in my gums. And uh, it was the right time to stop. If I had kept going on, I would have probably not only lost my children, but I would have, my health would have deteriorated in a big, big way. And it would have been absolutely horrible. And um, from that day forward, I stopped the methamphetamine, but I still smoked cigarettes and marijuana. Um, But I never did around the kids. And I did it usually when they were um, either with their dad's parents or when they went to bed. And then um, as I moved on into my late 20s, I moved on from the drugs to uh, drinking wine. And I quickly found myself in a very volatile relationship. And I also found that when I drink and I get... Um, drunk that I was a very mean drunk Um, and I did not like that so I stopped drinking for a while but I continued always with the smoking and the marijuana 
there's one time in my life when I was trying to quit smoking and I was going, this was back in 2013 and I was going to the addiction recovery class put on by the church um, that I would have described. They actually asked me how I would describe my addiction to cigarettes and I told them that cigarettes are my best friend. Cigarettes are always there for me. Sad, happy, mad, glad. It does not matter. And they never talk back and they never make me feel bad. Do you see the pattern and the thinking of an addict? Here I am saying this about cigarettes and what do we actually know about cigarette smoking? The harm that it does to the body. The harm that it does to others around us. Um, so there's just so much distortive thinking that comes with addiction. And, uh, I attended the class for the cigarettes, the marijuana, and I, what really struck me was that the LDS recovery program, of course, is centered around the atonement and Jesus Christ. And the biggest thing that they help you to acquire is the belief and faith that Christ can heal you, that he can take that burden and he can be your strength. Um, when I go out and do missionary work and inevitably I come across someone who's taking the lessons and they can't kick the cigarette habit, I always, always just encourage them to keep doing it because they're going to fall off that wagon so many times. I counted how many times it took me to quit smoking cigarettes and it took me 28 times. And the last time that I smoked, I remember coming into my home, going into my room and shutting the door and I hit my knees and I just pleaded with Heavenly Father. I said, I can't even stand myself anymore. I can't even look at myself in the mirror. I'm so disgusted with the fact that I cannot have any self-control and that I needed him to be my backbone because I could not do it myself. And that was the last time I had a cigarette. And so, you know, I am grateful for this gospel. I'm grateful to live during this time in the latter days to have the fullness uh, of the restoration, the ongoing rolling out of the fullness of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I have thought many times to myself, like, why did I have to go through that? Why did I have to suffer? Why me? You know, so often people say that they've walked away or they don't believe in God because life is so hard. You know, life was so difficult because I had to go through this so there can't be a God. But in retrospect for me, I see every step of the way where there was a God. Um, for me, where he was always there. Um, my Savior was always there. There's so many times that I should have died or I could have hurt somebody else. Or, you know, really terrible, horrible things could have happened. I, I opened myself up because of my addictions to potential rape scenarios. Um, I was hanging out with people that tried to get me to do some of the worst, horrible things that you could ever think of. And uh, for some reason, he was always there. 
And yet the gospel teaches us that when we put ourselves off from the Lord, that the spirit can't be with us. And you know what? It's true. There is the black and white of the gospel. There are those teachings and we do need to understand that because there is an order to the way that the spirit and father works, but there's also mercy. His ways are not our ways. And what I have found is in my most desperate moments that the Holy Ghost has protected me. The Holy Ghost has quickened my mind so I can sober up and get myself out of that situation. The Holy Ghost has warned me so I can leave. Um, And the Spirit has always been with me. And I so much appreciate this loving, tender mercy that Father in Heaven has has given me. And I I do believe that's also because He knows. He knows my life and He knows where I'm going to go. He knows the decisions I'm going to make. And He knew. He knew that eventually I would make it. But I did live 22 years this way. Um, And that was just as an adult. That doesn't even include my childhood years. So it's very long. More more years of my life were spent doing and indulging in my addictions than living the gospel. And that is a true eye-opener for me because I feel like I've been in the gospel forever. So why did I share my story? Why am I being so open? Because I just want you guys to know that Jesus Christ changes people. When we repent and are baptized and then we're set apart and given the gift of the Holy Ghost, um, actually when we have the laying on of hands, baptized by fire and given the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then we set out and do, we live the gospel. We do the best to be all in. And again, that's not going to be a linear experience. There's going to be hills and valleys, ups and downs. But as long as we continue to engage and do, my life has been enriched and it has strengthened me. I have become a person that I thought that I would never become. You know, in my heart, in the most secret of secret places in my heart, I always wanted to get married to a man who was fully engaged in the gospel and held the priesthood and would be a wonderful man, husband, father figure to my children uncle to my nephews and nieces, and good to my parents and family. And uh, I really never thought that it would happen to me because of all of my life choices. You see, agency is key. We must think consequences. How are we going to wield our agency, which is a divine gift given to us by a loving Heavenly Father and a perfect plan of salvation? Um... So, yeah, I am I'm in a good place, and I was rewarded with a wonderful husband who is all in in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does hold the priesthood and is very flawed as we all are. He's repentant, and he's always a good example to me of humility and meekness. And Father, once again, Heavenly Father, he knows me. 
He knows those secret, secret compartments in my heart, those desires. And he has blessed my life tremendously. Even with all of my mistakes, my transgressions, my sins. And this is what I want whoever's listening right now, whoever needs to hear this, I want you to know there's nothing you can do to put yourself so far off from the rescue of the infinite atonement. Now we know there's one or two things, but most of us who are in the church not going to do those things. You are retrievable. You are loved. And they are still reaching out, wanting to help. It's been a long journey, and sometimes I'm still on that journey. Like I said, I'm dealing with the the food, you know, situation. It's a food is an overused anxiety medication. Um, so I'm working on that now, and sometimes I do have moments where I really struggle, and I want to fall back into. <sighs> these old habits and they just dog me and they just dog me and they just sometimes it seems like they'll never go away and that's what happens when you expose yourself to too much in the world and you do too many things that are not part of the gospel not part of the plan of salvation as that then becomes ways that Lucifer likes to torment and get at you. But what I have found is I do my best to put my head down and to stay in it. And I work very, very hard at it. There's nothing that I've ever done in my life besides my children and my current marriage. So put so much time, effort, and energy in as living the gospel. It truly has been my salvation a blessing and Christ truly has saved me he is my savior and he is yours too Joseph B. Worthland he gave a talk back in May of 1990 and it's called Personal Integrity and this is an excerpt Integrity means always doing what is right and good, regardless of the immediate consequences. It means being righteous from the very depth of our soul, not only in our actions, but more importantly, in our thoughts and in our hearts. A little lying, a little cheating, or taking a little unfair advantage are not acceptable to the Lord. The consummate reward of integrity is the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost who will guide us in all we do. Integrity is such an important attribute to have that can really keep us on that very straight and narrow path back home. I wanted to discuss a little bit about some things that you can do as your part if you are suffering from addiction or if you're someone who's a family member that's suffering from someone else's addiction. So you can pray for help. You can always ask God for help 
and he is there and he'll answer your prayer always. Sometimes he doesn't answer immediately, so we just need to keep at it, but he will answer. And it's so important for us to find hope, to know that the Savior can heal you as you do your part. Hope is everything. Hope is what keeps us going. Um, Being honest, you know, it's important that we're honest in all of our dealings. It's one of the questions um, for baptism and, of course, temple recommendation. Addiction gains power in secrecy. So it's important that we use honesty to weaken addiction's power. And then we need to connect with others. Connection can fill needs that addiction often offsets. It's important that we do not isolate ourselves. Again, whether you're the addict or you're the family or a friend of an addict, we need to connect with others and we need to make a plan to prayerfully consider changes that need to be made and to avoid difficult situations, maybe a situation that would tempt you and to learn from our mistakes. The biggest thing that I have to work with is um, my children are not active in the gospel. And so they do, um, you know, drink and they do other things. And I have chosen not to use the gospel in my home and say, well, you can't come visit if you're going to do this, or you can't, you know, you can't be here if you're going to do that. Basically, what I ask them to do is just whatever you're going to do and do it out in the backyard and um, just be respectful. And they are very respectful. It's hard for me to watch my kids do these things. It really is. But I understand. See, this is what happens when you have these experiences is that you understand. And you're never going to get somebody active or in the gospel by using the gospel to make them feel um, as if they are too far, too gone, uh, that there's no saving, that they're just, you know, wrong, wrong, wrong. You're bad, bad, bad. Um, So what I try to do is let them know how much I love them and how much Heavenly Father and Christ love them. Even in that moment in time when they're doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, I want them to know that they're loved because it's, you know, we love people into the gospel. It's also super important to be accountable, you know, to have somebody that you trust that um, you can check in with, that you can talk about your issues and your struggles as you're trying to overcome these addictions and be very, very open with. Sometimes they call this person a sponsor or a mentor, but you do need to have someone that you can talk to about this that will make you accountable for your behavior and the things that you're doing. And for me, during that time when I was getting sober, it was very much so my husband, who is one of the most non-judgmental people I've ever met, and I just love him for it. Um, Make sure that you get support, again, whether it's the addict or you're in the world of an addict. You have to get support and you don't need to do it alone. You know, talk to your bishop, talk to your family, um, find somebody, a friend, somebody that you trust, but make sure you get support and that you talk. And remember, this is so important, that you are a child of God. Don't define yourself by your addiction. 
have compassion for yourself and others. One of the biggest things that I really could have done for myself and I did do for myself that wasn't, you know, very advantageous is that I studied out my identity, um, both spiritual and physically. And during that process, I used my patriarchal blessing and I have a firm testimony of who I am, who I was in the pre-existence, how much I mean to Father in Christ. And that has really helped me to continue to push forward and overcome these things that I thought that I would never overcome. I really thought that I was going to be doing these things well into my 60s and 70s and I would probably die young because I was doing these drugs and drinking and everything and I was being, you know, just suffering from it all. And it's so, it's such a beautiful thing to be released from the prison that addiction puts you in. And then just remember to don't give up. You know, when we repent, it's more than likely we're going to, we're going to do it again. And so you just keep, you keep going. You don't give up. You keep repenting. You keep asking for help, for strength, and you do the things that you need to do. Work after it. Do the things that you need to do to keep you where you need to be so that you're not falling back on some of these, you know, bad coping skills and behaviors. Um, Even if you slip up, no effort is wasted. Remember, effort brings reward. So just keep at it. It takes time to heal. So be patient with yourself. And then I always encourage this therapy. Therapy has been very helpful for me and has put my experiences into perspective so that once again, I'm not defined by my experiences, my past, my addictions, the abuse. It's just part of what has become my story and how I have become who I am today. So oftentimes when I do missionary work, the missionaries will reach out to me because they're, you know, familiar a little bit with my background. And um, being from a beach town, we have an eclectic group here. And, uh, you know, oftentimes we'll have people that we're teaching who have addictions. And so I love being able to go in there and work with people um, because I have so much hope and I want them to know that they don't have to be this way, that they don't have to be stuck that they can be released from the shackles. I mean, it truly is bondage, these addictions. And um, just to express to them how much they're loved. You know, when you're steeped in addiction, you can forget how special you are, where you came from, who you are. You just forget. And so I just, you know, when I think about why me, why did I have to go through this? Now I understand agency. People are going to use their agency sometimes to do really bad, terrible things. And father cannot interrupt that. He cannot. I mean, it's up to his discretion, but he cannot interrupt that. But what he can do is he can help us. He can comfort us just like he did with Christ in Gethsemane. Um, He left him for a moment but he sent an angel to comfort him. And that's what he did with me is through all of this ugly, through all of this 
suffering and pain and sorrow and just a lot of ugly. He's always been there with me and he can always, he is always there with you. He's always reaching out and he never, ever gives up. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope that the spirit has been able to touch you in some way that this can truly be helpful as that's what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to gather with the savior, the hens. I'm looking to edify and uplift. I'm looking to give people hope and to know that you're not lost and to know how much you're cared for and to know that there's nothing that you can do that'll put you off from the Lord. You are a child of God. He loves you. I love you. And know that there is spiritual grace and power there for you to tap into any time that you need it to overcome. Remember, Christ has descended all things so he can be the perfect healer. Please stay safe. Stay healthy, and most importantly, stay faithful. And remember to be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Until next week, God bless and much love.